0: Welcome, everybody, uh, to this uh, webinar on policies to fight the pandemic in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, which is co-hosted by the LSE, Latin America and Caribbean Centre and the School of Public Policy. My name is uh, Gareth Jones, and I'm director of the Latin America and Caribbean Centre, which serves as the school's hub for research and engagement uh, with the region. Uh, we are all brought together for this event, uh, sadly, of course, because Latin America and the Caribbean have become the epicenter of COVID-19, uh, with high levels of infection and morbidity. Most, but not all, uh, governments in the region have acted swiftly to tackle the health, public health impacts, uh, but with significant consequences for national and regional economies. Uh, We're joined today by a distinguished panel um, to discuss the economic outlook uh, for the region and what policy measures uh, can be put in place to mitigate the effects uh, of the pandemic and perhaps return to growth uh, in the medium term. Before I outline uh, how the uh, panel will be organised, I'd first like to invite Uh, the LSE's director, Dane Manoush Shafiq, and then Malcolm uh, Gere, Inter-American Development Bank Executive Director for the United Kingdom, uh, to open the event. Uh, Manoush, over to you, please.
1: Thank you, Gareth, and welcome to all of you uh, to this event. Since the COVID-19 crisis has erupted, we at the London School of Economics have hosted a series of public events organized by our School of Public Policy to try and better understand the crisis and its consequences for the world. And this has been across the whole array of disciplines, ranging from the lack of an effective international economic response to the social and economic consequences for vulnerable Households. If you're interested in that research, please just search for LSE COVID and you will find a wealth of material uh, about what we've learned so far about this devastating crisis. Today's discussion is about Latin America and the Caribbean and Gareth rightly says this has become the new epicenter of this horrible crisis as COVID winds its way around the world from east to west. And in this region, This crisis comes on top of existing economic and social challenges and vulnerabilities, Uh, and I think we'll hear about more about that in the in the presentation that we will. That we were here. I think we've all learned we're incredibly interconnected and we need to learn from each other. And so this is a fantastic opportunity to do that. And this excellent work by the Inter-American Development Bank provides us a wonderful basis for understanding what's happening in Latin America, and more importantly, figuring out how to improve the situation in the region in the years ahead. And with that, I'll turn over to Malcolm Gere, who's the UK's representative at the Inter-American Development Bank, for some remarks.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Let me start by thanking Dame Shafiq and the staff of the LSE for hosting this event. Uh, In normal circumstances, the Inter-American Development Bank would present its annual macroeconomic report physically in the UK, as it has for the last eight years. While it's a shame that such an event could not happen this year, This virtual event is a fantastic substitute. In fact, I suspect there'll be a wider audience today that goes well beyond Britain. So perhaps there is a silver lining to the current situation. I wanted to take the opportunity to say a few words about the UK, Latin America and the Caribbean and the Inter-American Development Bank, of which the UK has been a member for over 30 years. This could not be a more interesting time to be at the board of a multilateral development bank. Their ability to provide rapid and substantial countercyclical finance, as they did after the 2008 financial crisis, is a key value of these institutions within the international financial system. The IDB has responded with impressive speed to help its 26 Latin American and Caribbean member countries manage the immediate impact of the COVID pandemic, approving around 40 loan operations worth $8 billion in the four months since the pandemic was declared, with a further $5 billion planned by the end of this year. As the largest multilateral financer in Latin America and the Caribbean, the IDB is an important platform for delivering UK priorities in the region. These priorities were set out in the Canning Agenda by then Foreign Secretary William Hague, with the aim of reinvigorating the UK's relations with Latin America. And they are as relevant to the UK's post-Brexit vision as they were at the time. The Canning Agenda is built around a strong set of partnerships based on our liberal and democratic values strong political and legal institutions, sustainable and inclusive economic growth and the championing of free trade, as well as people to people links and effective cooperation on innovation and global issues for global good. Over the last 10 years, the UK has established a stronger network of diplomatic posts in the region, opening three embassies and two consulates general, tripled the number of Chevening scholarships awarded to Latin American applicants and developed stronger ties in science and education. Net UK investment is growing strongly, more than doubling in Brazil since 2010, from £6.4 billion to £15 billion. We have broadly complementary economies, and our regional partners see the UK's focus on global Britain as an opportunity to secure better trade deals, more access to UK markets, and more investment in high-tech solutions such as agritech, sustainable infrastructure, and clean energy. They see the UK as a world leader in education, science and innovation, and they want more scholarships, research, grants and cooperation on tertiary education. Several countries in the region have approached the UK to be involved in vaccine trials and the AstraZeneca Oxford University phase three clinical trials will take place in Brazil. One of the UK's highest regional priorities relates to climate change in our COP26 presidency. We are encouraging the IDB to use its resources and its policy influence to help countries build back better from the COVID crisis. Lord Nick Stern recently spoke to the IDB board and management about how to design economic stimulus that is clean, inclusive and resilient. The UK is working with the government of Chile on a coalition of finance ministers for climate action event in August and with the IDB on a sustainable finance event in October. And we'll be pursuing further opportunities in the next 16 months to promote with the IDB a high ambition outcome to COP26 next year. IDB president Luis Alberto Moreno describes Latin America and the Caribbean as a biodiversity superpower. The region contains at least 23 percent of the world's forests, 25 percent of the world's cultivable land and 30 percent of global reserves of fresh water. The UK is the IDB's lead climate and environment donor with 300 million pounds of UK international climate finance, supporting both innovation and transformation. These UK funds contributed to the Colombian government's renewable energy auction this year, and our pilot of sustainable agriculture techniques in Brazil has demonstrated that productivity and growth can go hand in hand with conservation and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're bringing UK expertise to the region through the IDB, for example, using UK satellite technology to map the condition of Venezuela's agriculture sector, or using the strength and depth of the UK's financial sector to develop a methodology for mapping the proceeds of green bonds in order to build investor confidence in the region. Finally, there's the importance of links to UK academic institutions. The IDB has a strategic partnership with LSE, and for many years, LSE and UK academics in general have participated in the IDB's network research program with top academic institutions in Latin America and the Caribbean. On 30th of July, the IDB will launch its annual flagship Development in the Americas publication. The 2020 publication, entitled The Path to Better Infrastructure in Latin America and the Caribbean, looks at the future for energy, transport, and water and sanitation. The main argument is that revolutionary change is coming. Technology is not just bringing us new products or better solar panels at cheaper costs, but it is also disrupting the very nature of the markets and services. There are dangers here, but there are also immense opportunities, provided policies can be implemented to take advantage of more competitive and likely more decentralized markets and ensure higher quality and cleaner services at better prices. As the UK is at the forefront of these changes, I hope we might be able to organize a future event on this new publication. But for now... Thank you for joining us and I will hand over to my colleagues to present our 2020 macroeconomic report, Policies to Fight the Pandemic. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Malcolm, and uh, thank you, Manoush, uh, for the introductions. Um, The way that the rest of this um, event will uh, take place is essentially in three 30-minute slices, um, we hope. starting with the co-authors of the Inter-American Development Bank's 2020 macroeconomic report to address the policy options and the economic effects of the pandemic. We'll then move to a debate, uh, or discussion at least, uh, between Professor Andres Velasco of the School of Public Policy, Eric Parado uh, of the IDB, Chief Economist of the IDB, and Brian Winter, uh, until recently uh, Governor of the Bank of Jamaica, and then we will move to uh, questions and answers uh, from you, the audience, to the wider panel uh, on events that uh, strike your interest, uh, and you'd like to know some uh, insights or answers uh, to. Please, at any stage during the event, um, type into the chat function uh, any questions that you have, and if possible, identify uh, who you are. Um, if you'd also like to follow um, the event uh, on Twitter uh, and communicate in that way, then the hashtag or the handle is uh, hashtag LSECOVID19, all one string. Um, without further ado, then, I will pass over uh, to uh, Dr. Andrew Powell uh, and Dr. Victoria Nuzier, um who are the co-authors uh, of the 2020 uh, macroeconomic uh, report. Uh, Andy over to you uh, first. Okay, thank you very much. Well, first of all, let me uh,
3: thank uh, Minush and, and Gareth and, and Andres Velasco also for um, and all the staff at the LSE for for hosting this event. It's it's fantastic to to be able to present this to the LSE wider LSE audience. So, thank you so much for for allowing us this this opportunity. I'm going to um, share the screen now um, and put the presentation. Okay, hopefully that's, everyone can see that. Um, so this, um, as Gareth mentioned, this is our 2020 Latin American macro uh, economic report for, for Latin America and the Caribbean policies to fight the pandemic. We actually uh, launched this report right at the end of March, but um, uh, we've been updating the presentation on almost a daily or at least a weekly basis since then, so um, I, uh, the, the presentation is is up to date. Um, the report is is available on our our website with with supporting material that I'll mention. Um, Victoria and I were the coordinators of this report. It's uh, it's it was a great team effort among um, many people, our colleagues in the research department and. Uh, in, at the idB and also many others in other divisions across the across the idB so we had the pleasure to coordinate uh, um, what was a, an effort across many people across different divisions of the bank um, so as you're all aware the the, virus, the coronavirus is affecting virtually every country in the world. There was an early study out of imperial college in in London that suggested that would there would have been Three, over three million deaths in Latin America and the Caribbean, if no measures had been taken to suppress the virus. And of course, um, there were measures taken. The first priority was to take the necessary steps to, to save lives. I think the count to date is a bit more over two point five. Excuse me, a million cases and, and just over 100,000 deaths. Unfortunately, um, cases and deaths are still rising. We're still not um, reached uh, the peak. Uh, and countries are taking strong actions, um, it varies across countries, but but there are strong actions in virtually all countries where, where those cases are rising, um, and of course that's having major impacts on on the economies in the region. There are some scary numbers out there, and we'll be showing you some scary numbers as there are elsewhere in the world, but of course we should remember that this is not a normal recession, it's very far from a kind of typical business cycle. Um, and as such, um, we think that, you know, it's not really the time for standard counter-cyclical policies right now. Um, we shouldn't really be talking about stimulus if that stimulus actually goes against um, social distancing objectives to beat the virus. It is a time for relief. So, so we talk more in the report about the policies for relief rather than for stimulus. And we also think that most of interventions should be designed and communicated as temporary Um, The region actually did a lot as a response to the global financial crisis, but the response to the global financial crisis was uh, wanting in several ways, particularly on the fiscal side. It it turned out there was essentially a permanent fiscal stimulus rather than a temporary response. Um, And that was to do with the design of the specific policy measures. So this time around, we really need to think quite carefully about how to have policies which are temporary in nature against what we hope, of course, is a is a temporary shock. Having said that, there may be opportunities to do reforms of more of a permanent nature that we should have been doing anyway, uh, and and sometimes crises spurs those reforms. Um, so it's a combination, I think, of those reforms plus what uh, temporary measures to provide relief for what we hope is a temporary crisis. I'm going to talk briefly about the impact on the region and some scenarios for growth. And then I'll talk briefly about the financial sector, the initial conditions and, and a, a policy discussion. And then Victoria will, will then take over and talk about monetary and fiscal policy and um, the conclusions of our, of our report. Um, of course, the region is also, we're a group of relatively small uh, open economies, so external factors matter enormously to Latin America and the Caribbean through various channels. There's of course the external demand for goods and services and trade has almost uh, almost collapsed. Uh, we'll see a couple of graphs in a second. And services also, which are very important, for example, in the Caribbean, the tourist sector is is, is very important indeed. And there's been a, a sudden stop. Uh, Eric likes to call it a triple sudden stop. The first sudden stop being in terms of people. So we will. Um, so tourism has been uh, really devastated, um, and uh, it will be interesting to hear Brian's remarks later on on the Caribbean. Remittances are also very important, uh, both for the Caribbean and for Central America, and they've been falling given the um, situation in the labour market in the U.S. in particular. Commodity prices fell, and financial markets have all also been uh, impacted. This is a graph on on commodities, uh, three commodities that are particularly important for Latin America and the Caribbean, oil, copper and soya. As you can see, the oil market went through tremendous uh, volatility. In fact, we even had negative prices in this market called WTI, West West Texas Intermediate in the U.S. Since then, uh, that was a bit of an aberration. And since then, oil prices have recovered relatively, relatively strongly, in fact. Uh, and copper and soy have also recovered, although um, down from the beginning of the beginning of the year. Um, financial markets were also impacted, uh, and Victoria will talk a bit more about this in a minute about capital flows. Um, but just to give you one graph on on bond uh, spreads and yields. So in other words, the cost of finance the cost of finance rose very significantly from the end of the year to the end of March. Um, uh, spreads rose quite dramatically. Yields also rose, but less because U.S. interest rates um, fell. These are dollar spreads and, and dollar yields. Since the end of March, things have improved a little bit and have stabilized, but there's great heterogeneity across countries. So um, there are some countries that essentially have no access to capital markets at the, at the moment. Others have access, but typically um, they have access at higher, higher costs. Um, So we maintain a statistical model at the IDB. We don't actually do our own projections per se, but we do um, some scenario analysis. And I think at the the current time, that's not a bad way to go because there's so much uncertainty out there about particular projections that perhaps considering scenarios is a safer safer route. Um, Here we've done a couple of, I'm going to show you a couple of simulations. Um, We, we, in the first one, we take the baseline basically from what the IMF produced in April, but then we construct scenarios using more recent forecasts for what's going to happen in the rest of the world um, uh, uh, leading up, up, up to today. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to take this, uh, a baseline from April for Latin America and the Caribbean. We're going to use updated forecasts for the US and for China which are much more negative than the april numbers uh, were were indicating and we're going to add a financial shock to that because if those negative scenarios come to pass then there will definitely be also a shock to a further shock to to financial markets and then we will consider the impacts on latin america and the caribbean and this is this is the result the IMF forecast around April had, had about a minus um, 7% growth for the, for the region this year, and then a fairly sharp recovery uh, next year to almost um, 5% growth for 2021. Um, but if we take scenarios uh, using updated forecasts for the U.S. and for China, for uh, 2020, 2021, and 2022, then we come up with these new scenarios indicated by the red and the blue curves, and these are actually taken from the OECD that had two scenarios where one was if 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 there was just one wave of the COVID virus, and then the second one was if there was two waves of the COVID virus. This is two waves in the world, so in the U.S. and in China, etc. And as you can see, this this the impact on Latin America is really very strong indeed. So instead of around minus 7% in the one-wave scenario, we would have minus 8% growth for 2020. And in, uh, in the two-wave scenario, we would have around minus 10% growth. And also, our statistical model of the world economy tends to indicate more of a U-shaped recovery. So as you can see, the recovery is much slower than the rebound um, suggested by um, the IMF in April. In like fact, the IMF has just come out with a June update to its forecast, which um, suggests around 9% growth for the region. So it's actually in between the red and the blue curves, although the IMF is still much more optimistic about what happens in 2021. We're a little more pessimistic. Um, we think the U shape, it's probably more going to be a U than a V. But, you know, as I said before, there's a huge amount of uncertainty attached to any of these, these 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 projections. And of course, these growth projections have very significant impacts for, um, for, for people's lives and, uh, and livelihoods, of course, and also for the fiscal and the debt situation in the region, which um, uh, Victoria will, will talk about uh, in a minute. Now the impacts do vary significantly across the region, across countries, depending on how the external demand actually impacts particular countries. In Central America, the links to the U.S. are very high, remittances are very important. Oil is something of a compensatory factor, given that uh, countries in Central America are oil importers. Mexico is perhaps the country most um, involved in global value chains, um, and so is hurt by, uh, um, uh, by the manufacturing recession across the world. The Caribbean, as I mentioned, is particularly vulnerable to tourism and also remittances and some countries to commodity prices. The Andean countries, such as Ecuador and and Colombia um, (coughs) uh, and Peru, uh, vulnerable to oil and metals prices. And in the southern cone, metals for Chile, agriculture for Argentina and Brazil, Paraguay and Uruguay. And the impact of oil there is, is somewhat mixed. And financial markets affect all of Latin America but also, with, as I mentioned, with heterogeneous uh, impacts. For more details on the impacts on particular countries, um, with, our, with our report, we also published, the IDB also published a set of country-level briefs. So there's a brief for each of the 26 countries um, that Malcolm mentioned in his uh, introduction. Um, so please um, do go online and find more information about any particular country that you might be interested in. Um, from these these country breeds. Now we also turn the model around because, as I mentioned at the beginning, unfortunately the um, the coronavirus cases are still rising in Latin America and the Caribbean, and we still don't know exactly how this uh, crisis is going to end. So here, what we've done is we've turned the model around and said, well, what happens if there's a really bad shock, something bad happens in Latin America? How will that affect the rest of the world? And it should be remembered if you add Latin America together. Uh, Latin America and the Caribbean is about a $5.2 trillion economy. So if you have a bad shock in um, particularly Brazil, Mexico, which are the larger countries in the region, that does have impacts according to our model across the world. Um, here we have a uh, roughly a 3% shock, 3% of GDP shock to both Brazil and to Mexico. And it does have a significant impact on the U.S. and also in the Eurozone we we haven't done this specifically for the UK. We can we can do that. Um, we haven't done it for this particular presentation. We can talk about it later. Um, what it does basically is it slows down the um, projected recovery in both the US and in, and and in the eurozone, um, and and knocks off a um, almost a bit a bit less than one percent of GDP in, in both cases. So let me talk about the financial sector very briefly, and then I'll um, pass the microphone as it were to Victoria. So the good news on the financial sector in Latin America is that as we came into this crisis, the financial sector was in pretty good shape. Um, The financial sector is very bank dominated in the region. Um, So looking at banks is is the first approximation to looking at the financial sector. And and as we can see in this graph, banks have very strong capital ratios. Um, the, The region has been through so many financial crises Banks are now fairly conservative and they hold um, not only are regulations more tighter in Latin America uh, than in most countries in the world, but banks also hold more capital than those uh, regulations um, suggest. Uh, We also did an analysis in the report about how banks behave given negative shocks and find that they do act uh, very conservatively uh, across the region in, in general. Now, these buffers are very important, both capital and liquidity, when you get negative shocks, as the region is experiencing at the moment. Um, and, and this is a huge shock, and credit risk, no doubt, has risen quite dramatically. So um, ensuring financial stability is a first priority, and central banks and regulators are indeed monitoring financial systems very carefully. Most countries have, uh, Im- have already announced loan moratoria and are, have implemented some form of uh, loan moratoria. 20 countries uh, of the 26 borrowing members of the IDB. Um, And and on top of this, governments have tried various different schemes to try to boost credit and to prevent firm liquidations and try to maintain as many employees on the firms of the books as possible. Um, 19 countries in the region have introduced some kinds of programs in this this way. These programs are very difficult to implement, I have to say, and and maybe we can come back to this in the the Q&A. It's very difficult to tread this balance between um, supplying almost 100% guarantees, but at the same time trying to reduce the fiscal implications of these programs and to ensure that there is significant take-up from firms. So it has not been easy, and the experience is mixed. Um, And then also, given the high amount of liquidity in the region – Many countries have uh, reserve requirements or specific liquidity requirements that go way beyond um, the normal micro-prudential measures. They're more like macro-prudential liquidity requirements. And so countries have been able to um, uh, use those uh, uh, reserves and reduce the regulations on those reserves to allow greater liquidity in financial sectors. So let me... um, uh, Pass the microphone to Victoria, who is going, and Victoria will carry on monetary fiscal policy and conclude. Thank you very much.
4: Okay, sorry. <laughs> thank you very much, Andy, and thank you very much, uh, Gareth uh, Minush and Andres for the invitation to present the macro report. So let me go quickly to the monetary policy uh, stance, and especially where the region was before this financial crisis. This sorry, this crisis hit, and in terms of monetary policy, the region was. <laughs> kind of in in a very good shape prepare for for this crisis especially because inflation was really low as you can see uh, inflation was like in the last two years was kind of the lowest with respect to the last 20 years so here the red line is the median for the region and so and you can see that inflation was low for e- almost like every country without like mattering the monetary regime that the country was uh, was following. Another good news is that 11 countries in the region have implemented or are in the process of implementing inflation targeting, and this is good, good news because in this type of regimes, if the exchange rate work as a as a shock absorber, and so when the crisis hit, actually it actually was working uh, in the way that it was expecting. But it's not only inflation helps us to determine the monetary policy space that the region had, but also the level of policy interest rate that the region had, the level of international reserves and the exchange rate pass through, basically uh, basically movements in the exchange rate, how much they are transferred to inflation and how much that is impact. Now the region has has gained credibility in terms of, sorry, the central banks in the region have gained credibility in the last few years. And this was basically because Inflation was was low, and also because of good institutions, and this is something that is very important when it comes to the policies that the central banks are going to carry out during this crisis. And more credibility gain implies that the policies will be more efficient. One of the one of the main risks that we see in the region, and I mean, and I mean, we, and we've seen that it has a slowdown is a strong flight to quality. Uh, of capital. And so we see that this is a figure that shows FFR funds uh, for the reporting countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And this goes from the beginning of the year until mid of June. And as you can see, in end of February and March, you see a big drop in the in the capital inflows. Basically, this means that there were capital outflows from the region. And this was very large, as you can see, and it represented around four percent of the GDP of the uh, reporting countries. This is only a fraction of the total capital outflows that we, that I mean that the region experienced, and it had, and it put a lot of pressure on the exchange rate. So the depreciation rates uh, with respect to the U.S. dollar for Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, from the beginning of the year until the end of April, were larger than twenty percent, and I mean, we've seen some recovering after April that it's also like reflecting on the some capital inflows that were going back into the region. Now, this is something to keep an eye on, especially because the region, I mean, is now experiences like one of like the largest, uh, co- I mean, the largest uh, COVID uh, cases around the world. So, but what have been central banks doing uh, since the crisis started? So basically, central banks have been very active, especially in the first few months of the crisis. And the main objectives of these, of, of these policies were are, are to be are to uh, sorry were, and are still maintain like the liquidity available for banks, firms, and households, and to keep the global value change and the uh, employees' labor income. All this while maintaining inflation and their expectations angle. Now, in a crisis like this, communication with the public is essential, especially when it comes like, to some policies that are not conventional policies, so the typically you known as conventional monetary policies, the central banks need to communicate very carefully what they are doing. So, as I, as I was saying, central banks have been very very active. We've seen that 14 countries have decreased their policy interest rates, and usually more than once. Uh, 12 countries have uh, intervened in the foreign exchange markets. We see also that six six countries have liquidity provisions in US dollars, and two countries, Mexico and Brazil, have uh, swap lines with the Federal Reserve Board. And six countries have been purchasing government and private bonds that in the US is known as quantitative easing. And here, communication with the rest of the agents in the economy is key because need to be very specific about how they're going to undo this type of policies and when are they going to when are they going to do it and which will be the conditions to undo these purchases. So here again as it was proved like during the uh, 2008-2009 crisis the communication of the central banks of their measures it's now also for this type of policies, you need a good coordination between the monetary, the financial, and the fiscal. Officer. So now going to the fiscal side, the, we don't have many good news there. I mean, here uh, we are showing you the uh, overall fiscal deficit for, for the region from 2007 until 2020 with the numbers from 2020 taken from the WIO from April. And we've seen that before this crisis, the region was performing, uh, was actually having like a consolidation of their fiscal deficit, especially for the countries with the highest uh, fiscal deficit, which was, I mean, that was like a good news for the region until like the crisis hit. And so we've seen that for 2020, the estimates are that the median countries will have a, an overall fiscal deficit of Around 5%, with a quarter of the countries having a deficit of 7% of GDP. And if we compare these numbers with with the ones before the 2008 crisis, 2008 2009 crisis, the region is much worse prepared. Like we've seen that for 2007 2008, the overall fiscal deficit was around 0% of GDP, while right now we don't have that much fiscal space. Now, here we show the financial needs uh, as percentage of GDP, and these are on the uh, horizontal axis, while on the vertical axis we see the S&P 500 ratings. And as you can see, and here we are describing the overall, uh, the financial needs, sorry, as the sum of the overall fiscal deficit from the April's wheel, so the one that I just showed you, and the amortization of the debt that is due in the next 12 months. As you can see, there is a huge heterogeneity among the two dimensions inside the region. So we have countries that have very low ratings and very high financial needs, while we have some countries that have medium financial needs, but very good ratings. Uh, so I mean, this is a tricky situation for the region, but there's a lot of ter- lot of heterogeneity. And countries have been announcing packages that, uh, that have like to assist uh, during this crisis. So the policies here, as Andy was saying, should be thought as relief and not as a stimulus, especially to keep on the economy going once the lockdowns are are lifted. So additionally, the, ten- the intervention should be temporary and transparent, which will help for the sustainability of the fiscal side once this crisis is over. And given the limited fiscal space, there should be the maximum impact of each peso spent to support the health infrastructure and the supplies of health goods. And this has to be done with coordination, in coordination with the local governments. And there has to be support for families and firms. In these regards, 20 countries have been, sorry, 22 countries have been already implementing transfers to households. There has been a reduction or deferral of labor taxes and social security contributions. Uh, other, ca- uh, other taxes also have also been, uh, the payment of other taxes has also been postponed. This has been done for uh, in 19 countries. Uh, 21 countries have announced credit lines to firms. 20 countries have debt service deferrals and 16 have salary compensations to work. So, The key here is that the policy should assist the poor and the most vulnerable. And given the financial constraints that we've seen and that the region is facing, here the assistance of the multilaterals is needed and very welcome. So just a measure of how big this package has been given the financial needs that the region has. So here, again, on the horizontal axis, we have the financial needs. And on the vertical axis, we are plotting the the fiscal packages as percentage of GDP. And these are the fiscal packages announced. So we don't know if they have been actually uh, implemented or not. So the red dots represent uh, what we call kind of like the overall fiscal packages that include not only the part like the very specific fiscal measures, but also the credit programs to firms that are usually of principal fiscal balance sheet, and the blue dots represent the fisc- like the clean fiscal packages. And so you see, also you see like a lot of heterogeneity again with the countries with larger financial needs, probably with like smaller fiscal packages and some countries that have more, more room with larger fiscal packages. But still like the overall average for the region is only 4% of GDP, which is very little. So in this sense, the region we think should be doing uh, a, a little bit more uh, in, this, in, in this regard. So let me quickly conclude. So the region is experiencing uh, a steep fall in GDP and will eventually recover. So this recovery will depend on the policies carried out today. So it's like it's key to show activism on the policy makers, especially to support the productive core of the economies, and the right policies today can reduce economic costs today and help the recovery tomorrow. Unfortunately, we know and we've seen that inequality as inclu- and inclusion, sorry, inequality and exclusion are actually getting worse uh, during this crisis. So this will be a like persistent challenge to fight in the future. And here, yes. We, yeah.
0: Thank thank you, Andy uh, and Victoria. Um, I think that set the scene for us uh, beautifully. Um, I'd like to pass on now to uh, Professor Andres Velasco, uh, also to uh, Eric Parado uh, Herrera, who's Chief Economist at the IDB and uh, General Manager of the Research Department, and to Brian Winter, who uh, for 10 years and until uh, August last year, uh, was government, uh, governor of the uh, Bank of uh, Jamaica to sort of tease out for us a little bit more, uh, okay, what are the right policies and how do we set uh, perhaps what uh, what Eric, uh, what Andy and, uh, and Victoria uh, have set out for us in context within a, a wider uh, and policy-related uh, sphere. Andres, uh, over to you.
5: Thank you, Gareth. Good afternoon, everyone. Delighted to be here joining Manoush and the uh, IDB team. Thanks, Andy and Victoria, for a great presentation. And I'm particularly uh, uh, happy to be uh, sharing this block in the discussion with uh, my friend Eric, with whom I had the privilege of working for many, many years in the government of Chile and with uh, Brian Winter. One way of summarizing uh, the report we just heard from the IDB team is as follows. Latin America was not hit by simply one shock, the medical shock. Of course that's there and it's big and in some countries it is still growing. Latin America was hit by five shocks because to the medical shock, we have to add the collapse in trade volumes, the collapse in commodity prices, the collapse in service income, remittances, tourism, professional services, etc. And last but not least, the collapse in capital flows, which used to be inflows to Latin America and they have mostly become outflows. So if you look at it th- that way, this is a larger and more threatening set of shocks than we had 10 years ago. 10 years ago, clearly the financial aspect, the trade aspect uh, were all present. Some of the others were not. Another worrisome fact is that the initial conditions are today less auspicious than 10 years ago. Victoria said this very clearly. Most countries 10 years ago began with a situation not only of low inflation, but with low debt and ample fiscal space, this time around um, inflation is mostly under control, although it is, of course, not in Argentina, Venezuela, and a couple of countries, but uh, debt levels are higher, fiscal space is much more reduced, and therefore the room for doing innovative things on the fiscal front is uh, more limited. So, that's the bad news from Latin America. Now, um, Latin America, of course, is not alone in this uh, regard. Um, the you know Most of these uh, shocks, if not all, have also been affecting uh, other emerging markets elsewhere in Eastern Europe, in, in Africa, in uh, much of Asia, etc. So the first issue that I'd like the panel to maybe uh, have a view on um, is why is it that even though initial conditions were not great, but they were not terrible, and even though, um, as Andy and Victoria pointed out, the macro framework in most countries is much better than and, and it used to be, why is Latin America performing so poorly? If you pick up this week's Economist, um, there is a rather depressing article which says Latin America's performance today, both vis-a-vis the virus and vis-a-vis the economic policies uh, following the virus, cannot be viewed in isolation. They may be part of a systematic pattern of underperformance that is already lasting a century or more. So, let me address that to Eric. Eric, um, yes, the shock is big. The initial conditions were not so terrible. We're not alone, you know, we're not alone in being hit by these shocks, but we seem to be underperforming pretty much everybody on planet Earth. Why is that so? What are we doing wrong?
6: Okay. First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. Um it's a really great pleasure to to be here at at, at LSE, at least virtually. Uh, it's a pity not enjoying July in, in London, but anyways, <clears throat> we're, we're close some gaps with this webinar. Uh, and, and thank you very much for the, for the audience. There are people f- connected from everywhere, from Latin America, from the UK, from Pakistan, from India. I have the list here, Indonesia, Philippines. So thank you for very much for, for that. I'm going back to to your question, Andres, um, and and thank you for for raising it. Um, Let me give you an analogy. Um, I think Latin America and the Caribbean was a a plane with a damaged engine in 2018. And the damaged engine was related to low productivity in some cases, or probably in all cases. And in some Latin American countries, it was hit because of the social shock, I would say and then this airplane entered 2020 uh, and then we have the pandemic associated to COVID-19 and the other engine was damaged and now we're trying to fly this plane without engines uh, and trying to land in a safe place to save the life at the same time to save the airplane and probably we're going to land somewhere in, in the middle of nowhere and then we have to do all the reparation of the airplane and try to check if the passengers are alive and then try to continue on the path of uh, economic growth and development. So the pre-existence problems in Latin America were really extreme and the crisis just deepened all the issues that we had before. One uh, example of that is income distribution. Income distribution in Latin America and the Caribbean is one of the worst in, in regional terms. You compare only with, with uh, other regions like, like Africa. But now, because of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, income distribution is going to be worse. So we're going to end up in a world with where we're going to be much poorer, with a... Uh, with weakened institutions, with worse institutions and really indebted. So the, the picture for the future is not positive at all. So the thing is that if we had low productivity before the pandemic, we have to think how to raise and how to foster productivity in the future. And that means that we have to change things. We have to uh, think um, differently in terms of not trying to get back to the old normal, but trying to get back to a, a new normal, but only a better normal. Uh, that would mean that we need to have national consensus. Uh, we need to have a, a, a forward-looking view on policies. And I think that's the difficult part to have this type of political consensus, to say, you know what, we have to think in the medium long term and not in the short term given the short political cycles that we have. It's incredible that in our countries we do a reform and then the next government comes and do the reform of a reform. So we spend only four years trying to implement one of them and then there is a, a sudden change to, to to change things even even further. So I think we need again a political consensus we need uh, a stronger institutions some countries have done the job in terms of having strong institutions like fiscal policies or monetary policy but i think we have to do more than that uh, across the region thank
5: you eric I, I i could not agree more with the thrust of what you just said um you you were very polite given your position i will be less polite one way of summarizing our plight is simply saying uh it's the politics stupid, you know, it's not the, it's not just the economy stupid to quote uh, Bill Clinton's uh, famous advisor. Um, because as you point out, when we do the reform of the reform and the reform of the reform of the reform, there's very little policy continuity and very little uh, stability and predictability for, for firms, for investors, for, for everybody. Brian, let me, let me turn to you now. And um let us ask a question that maybe will make our IDB friends slightly uncomfortable, but we will ask it anyway. Um, are the international institutions doing enough? And let me let me explain that, what I mean by that. Rich countries are launching and applying fiscal packages that are absolutely humongous. You know, you see countries, uh, spending 10, 15, 18% of GDP. Nobody would expect Latin America or the Caribbean to spend 18% of GDP in addition to normal spending. Um, But imagine that, you know, we were to have a target of, say, 3, 4% of GDP, which is a lot more than most countries are doing, parenthetically. That would require that uh, financing available to the region... um, Re, you know, from the rest of the world were in the ballpark of about $250 billion. If I add up what is available today from the IMF, the World Bank, the IDB, uh, and all the other potential lenders, we're nowhere near that um, that amount. And, of course, that is not Eric's fault or, or Victoria's fault or, or Andy's fault. Uh, that's the way rules and institutions are um, are set up. But um, do you think, Brian, that the world could be doing more? And if the world doesn't do what it's supposed to do, are we not risking that this recession will, in fact, be both deeper, more persistent, and more painful than Victoria and Andy have just
7: suggested? Well, I think that... Um, well, before I answer that, could I just add my thanks to of course. Um, Victoria and to Andrew um, with respect to the preparation of this report. I think it's remarkable that something like this can be put together um, sort of on a dime, so to speak. Um, having prepared for the year without, without the year's report, without COVID, um, and then COVID occurs and you've got to completely rewrite it to present something um, that is relevant and has the quality that this has, I think is an important achievement. and I, 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 I want to thank them, uh, join everybody else in thanking them, and the team that put it together. But it's partly an answer to your question too, Andres, because I think that um, we shouldn't take for granted the um, existence of um, high quality analytical um, and qualified expert thinking focused on the economies of the Caribbean and Latin America generally, but the Caribbean in particular, small countries don't have that kind of resource. So there's a great value I think in, synthesizing what, what they're seeing and then presenting these options in this way. So I think I would say provide a tick to the to, to, to IDB, um, Andrew, um, for just for this, this kind of report. Um, it's a sort of intangible quality uh, or value rather that, um, that we often overlook and we shouldn't. Um, there's not enough of it and we need to encourage more of it. Um, so that the investors, the decision makers who have to respond to a question like the one that you raised for me, um, actually have to hand information and analysis that, is it, that they can use. And this is one of the things that very small countries uh, that is missing for them because there's such a high cost for any observer to develop the understanding needed to analyze the risks and assess uh, policies being taken or, or decisions being made. Um, So it it keeps out the the larger mass of of capital, for example. Um, I think in terms of the multilateral financial community um, in general, yes, they should do more. They should do a lot more. Um, I would not say, though, that it's about the quantity of resources that they provide, partly because there's there's an absorption issue that is well-known in the region. You know, you can throw money at this, but how is it really being spent in a way that doesn't leave countries um, saddled with high debt after the fact mm-hmm. um, and not much to show for it? So um, that presents, I think, a, a limitation uh, on the channel through which you can provide the support that we need. And so it takes us to where I think we should be, we should, one of the things we should focus on, which is how do you improve that channel, which is, which takes you into the capacity um, capacity development within um, the countries that you're seeking to help. Um, So I think more needs to be done, but it's on this sort of more difficult question um, and it doesn't get solved in the short term, but I think we have to, we, we, we need more resources applied to this area that helps to develop these countries. And I think it, it jives with something that um, Eric said, though, that, you know, you can be ready to deliver that, but if the consensus is not there within a country to accept it, to demand it, to actually use it, um, then, again, it's wasteful, and we're left with, with large debts. Um, but if I may Andres, I think that there's something that, um, that I think the... We could, we could ask in these, these circumstances. I mean, it was very clear from the presentation when you look at the, um, the, the, the loss of output and then the recovery afterwards, we can debate how deep is that loss of output, how long does it take to get back onto the pre-COVID path, um, and at best, let's assume we'll get back to the pre-COVID path of growth. That loss of output, those loss of jobs, the, the impact is we're never going to recover it. And and when the dust settles, we're left with more debt because we've been helped, Mm -hmm. whether it's private or public, but we will have found a way to support the families, et cetera, that have been dislocated, but that's debt for us. Um, And we'll be sort of right where we were before. Now, to me, that's just adding another stone Mm -hmm. to the millstone around the neck of countries and communities that are trying to develop. Um, And it's a bit paradoxical because you need the help now but look through that, how are you going to recover from there? And I think maybe to be practical, because I, you know, I quite agree with Eric's point about um, the importance of focusing on productivity and doing things differently so that we can have a different outcome. But if we assume, and I don't want to assume it, but if we believe that that's difficult to do and may or may not happen, is there anything else we can do while we're trying? And I'd like to suggest that we should take a look again at the the terms of sovereign debt, multilateral and and private. Um, You know, a lot has happened in the last many years with things like catastrophe clauses and so on that create Mm -hmm. some sort of automatic adjustment for natural disaster events and so on. Um, But can we maybe look at these, look again at the framework for concessionary debt as well as other debt, to bring more equity-like um, elements into it? Um, or if I could put it another way, can we take a look at these things to see is there a way for us to align the interests of creditors and debtors, sovereign debtors and creditors, um, to align them better to create incentives for um, Collaborative behavior when you hit crises like this one or others that um, lead to the better outcomes, or will encourage the better outcomes that um, Eric was pointing to. Um, I've just, as was pointed out by Gareth, I came through a a long period of reform in Jamaica. Um, yes, we did get that consensus between all the stakeholders and groups that I think was critical to, su- to, to us, conti- us succeeding so far. Um, but when you put all that together and make all that effort, um, you end up at the end of the day getting through a crisis, you have more debt, um, your poor aren't necessarily uh, much better off, uh, the dynamism that you're looking for in your society may not have emerged in the time frames that you're looking at, and the inexorable um, clock of a competitive political system, <laughs> that dynamic, um, can push you into outcomes that are much more dangerous to institution building. I believe it may be fair to say that a global pandemic represents, you you almost couldn't imagine a a, a stronger threat to that dynamic, uh, to a positive dynamic than a global pandemic where everybody's being hit at the same time. And so I think when it comes to what can the multilaterals and IDB and others do, I think it's time to sort of refocus on issues of capacity building and look Take another look at some things that may have been beyond the pale before, like um, more equity-like terms in bonds and loans, um, things that allow for adjustments or create incentives for reforms to be sustained over a longer period of time. For example, Um, I wouldn't want to go into the details here, but I think, can we look at those things and see if we can find a way to leverage this opportunity um, to align sort of the long-term interests of both creditors and debtors?
5: Thank you, Brian. Um, That's an absolutely excellent point. Um, As you correctly emphasise, in the best of all possible worlds, we will end up with GDP levels that are lower than before the crisis and debt levels that are much higher than before the crisis. And it's been a long time uh, since we started talking about catastrophe bonds, contingent bonds, and other more sophisticated financial instruments. But uh, very little has happened on that front. You know, companies. finance themselves with equity, not just with debt. Um, regrettably, countries in the emerging world seem to like debt and there's not that much equity uh, with uh, the problem that uh, that you identify as a conclusion. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I'd like to do one more round. Uh, so I'm going to ask both Eric and, 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 um, and Brian to uh, take a minute or two to maybe address uh, two, two issues, which I think are absolutely gigantic. Going back to Eric... Um, before your current job as chief economist of the IDB, you used to be Chile's chief financial regulator. So you know, Eric, a lot of what uh, things are like on the ground when it comes to getting credit to firms. Victoria and and Andy both emphasize that um, you know there are firms out there with very little income. We want them to be to remain current. First of all, with the workers, <laughs> with suppliers. We don't want them to fire everybody. We don't want them to default. Uh, and we want them to be ready for a recovery. But that means that um, central banks can make the credit available, but that we need tools to make sure that the credit, in fact, gets to, to that small shop in a, you know, in a faraway region of a large country in Latin America. How do you see that evolving, Eric? Are, are governments doing the right things? Are there more tools that, uh, that could be deployed? Um, uh, give us a sense of where, of, of where we are.
6: Thank you, Andres, for, for that question. It's is really important and and for all countries in, in Latin America and also for all countries in the world, I would say, because risk aversion is increasing dramatically and it's very difficult to have a change of behavior regarding liquidity and and, and, and loans for small and medium enterprises. And and we leave that together, Andres, in mm-hmm. during the global financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where we didn't have a specific idiosyncratic shock in chile but at the same time we were hit strongly uh, because of the the liquidity squeeze and and we tried to use several instruments we tried to apply several tools in terms of trying to react before the shock and for instance what we did at that time and and i think Uh, all the governments in the region are trying to do more or less the same, is, for instance, to provide liquidity through central banks or the government, and at the same time to capitalize state-owned banks. And in Chile, we did that in 2009 and also in 2020, and we provide a capital of $500 million. With the idea to have a financial arm, to start the loan provision for small and medium enterprises, but was a very, very risk aversion issue. And it's happening now, it's happening in 2020. For instance, there are very large liquidity provision packages uh, in some countries in Latin America, like in Chile and Peru. And the problem is that in the paper, it looks very good because it's a lot of money, but in the implementation, there are several, several problems. And there are several problems because it's, it's very easy. If there are lockdowns everywhere and you cannot go and eat in a restaurant and you cannot go and have uh, some fun in a, in a discotheque or if you cannot go to the gym, it's difficult for banks to take a decision to lend to those uh, companies. Very, very difficult. And that's why there are some schemes that provide more guarantees from the government to support that. The problem is the uncertainty of the length of the crisis. If the length is just a couple of months, three months, four months, six months, okay, that's, that's it. But if the, there is a lot of uncertainty regarding the solution of this uh, health shock, I think we're going to have some problems in terms of the implementation. Now, as we speak uh, at the Inter-American Development Bank, we are working with a couple of professors. Uh, One is Paul Gertler from Berkeley University and another one is uh, Sean Higgins from Northwestern University. And we're trying to understand first what is the shock coming from COVID-19 on small and medium enterprises and then try to put together an experiment and intervene the the bank and the companies to understand what is the better way to provide more uh, loans to these companies and trying to understand the sustainability of those companies in time so i, I will keep you when we have some results uh, probably they can be useful for for all countries not only in Latin america but also in the world because of course this is a really difficult task for all the governments and central banks in the world
5: Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, Brian, back to you. Um, You had a distinguished career running the central bank in Jamaica. So let me uh, invite you to turn back to to central banking issues for for a minute. Um, You know, the the feeling used to be once upon a time that uh, when a crisis like this came, there wasn't much that central banks in Latin America and the Caribbean could do. no, we were we, we worried about uh, cutting interest rates because uh, capital flight and depreciation could follow. Um, 10, 20 years ago, we would have never dreamed of doing things like buying central uh, government bonds or buying corporate bonds, doing QE, etc. But times have changed. Um, we see countries um, and central banks much more aggressively cutting interest rates. And as Victoria, I think it was pointed out, there's six or seven um central banks in Latin America, doing QE, um, buying um, corporate bonds, buying bank bonds, uh, trying to twist uh, interest rates, not only on the short end, but also on the longer end, uh, and force them down, et cetera, et cetera. Some central bankers say, this is great. We have enhanced powers. We you know we can do more things. Uh, and they celebrate. Other central bankers say, oh, my God, this is a road to perdition because... Uh, Soon enough, we will have central banks financing the government. And fiscal dominance, of course, is the old story in the Caribbean and Latin America. Uh, so uh, what have we done? Um, how do you see this? Uh, more central bank activism or, cent- or less central bank activism as the desirable course of action?
7: Well, I, I would say, um, you know, as, even as you spoke, I felt myself sort of getting a bit Nervous and tense. (laughs) But I'm not a governor, so... We we all are, I think. (laughs) But it's... um, I think that the answer, I, I would say, needs to be in ensuring that you have the right accountability framework for your central bank in place. Because I think the dangers of the activism... Well, the dangers of it, yes. Um it's sort of like back to the future for the region because that's the kind of central banks we were before um, in the old days, in the 60s and before, in the early days and, um, you know, very securely under or coordinated very closely with uh, ministries of finance. And so issues of political um, legitimacy, um, you know, wouldn't really arise. We moved out. Of, we've learned that we need to move out of that world if we're going to be successful in in tackling this sort of time problem for monetary policy um, so that you can deliver these lower inflation outcomes. And I think we've learned that, and that's broadly accepted, I think, in the region. Um, and so I think that making sure that you have the right accountability framework and that it works is number one. Because if you have it, then I think you can and should you have more flexibility as a institution and in your country to work in a complementary way with fiscal authorities to to apply to take all of these sorts of steps you can do them because you have, you, you can do them and be credible um, so accountability framework and your communication with the public become the vital elements that if you don 't have them securely in place and actively um, pursued then you know you really i think need to meet. As a citizen of the country, I'd be sort of getting nervous the more activism I saw the central bank involved with. And I'd be bracing myself for a repeat of what we've all been through in Latin America and the Caribbean in the past, you know, currency depreciation, inflation, currency depreciation, and so on. Um, we don't want to see that. And I think that people won't be comfortable with that. So if they refocus on those elements, um, recommit to, um, to, to to strong accountability for the central bank, um, and uh, demand good communication from the central bank, I think that's what ministers of government should be demanding and getting, country should get, then I think um, that's where you get the flexibility to pursue these sort of, you know, whatever the appropriate policy at the time is. And in this crisis, I think the the report uh, outlines a range of them, but then stresses that they must be, they're extraordinary but temporary. You know, to make something extraordinary and temporary requires a sort of, um, strength of the institution um, to, to be able to, to deliver on that. Um, I think that creditors and others are watching the Caribbean certainly small countries critically waiting to see waiting to see if we will sort of slip down that path and then they know how to play the game after that. And when I say creditors, uh, investors and so on, that includes the citizens of, of the countries, of our own countries. Um, I think the signal that we're not going down that path that you know, would be a powerful one. Um, now, can you pull all that off in the middle of the storm of this? I, I think that's difficult, um, but that's the real test, I think, for the for the, for the for the region right now. Thank you very much, Brian.
5: Um, we could carry on discussing these fascinating issues for a long time, but uh, I'm afraid I have to turn it over to Gareth because uh, we certainly want to have some Q&A with the audience. Gareth, over to you. Okay. Thank you very okay. Thank you, Brian.
0: Please, please stand by for some uh, for some questions coming your way. Um, I'm going to cluster together uh, uh, some questions. Uh, the first cluster picks up actually something that Andy and Victoria said in their presentation, which is that the emphasis right now should be on relief and not stimulus. Uh, and in that guise, there's uh, two or three questions that I'd like to um, target to particular. Uh, members of the of, of the panel. The first and there is a sort of popularity contest in the way that questions get posed here. So this is the most popular question uh, in the chat. So I have to ask it first and I'm going to ask it if I may to Andres uh, and to Eric and Brian uh, do come in if you feel motivated to do so. To comment on some current proposals um, being discussed in Chile uh, have been passed in Peru Mm -hmm. to allow people to access their pension funds Mm -hmm. as a way of stimulating economic activity. Uh, So that's that first question uh, to to ponder. Uh, Second question to Eric, I think, in the first instance, uh, and which relates to something he said about small and, and medium enterprises as well, we're almost certainly going to see uh, a, a wave of company defaults uh, on debts and, and company closures in the, in the next uh, year or two. Is there any argument for the governments of the region to bail out private companies? And where does he stand uh, on uh, that argument, particularly given high debt-to-GDP ratios already? Uh, in many uh, economies. And the third one uh, is, is a more inferential one from the presentation. It was mentioned very briefly, which is that now is perhaps not the time in Latin America for governments to adopt infrastructure programs, uh, except in the health sector, arguably. By contrast, the UK government is ha- coming up with its new slogan Build, Build, Build. Um, So what would be a sort of suitable set of infrastructure projects when and how might there be an argument for governments in the region under all of the fiscal and financial constraints that we've heard about to convert into a sort of Marshall, a COVID Marshall plan uh, to regenerate uh, economic activity through infrastructure, perhaps particularly because uh, the next flagship report uh, from the bank is on infrastructure. Uh, Andres, perhaps over to you on the first one about pension funds.
5: Sure, I'll take that uh, briefly and straight on. This is a much discussed issue. Let me begin by saying that all the speakers uh, in, on this panel so far spoke of the need for disaster relief. And I want to sort of underscore how important that is. And disaster relief should go primarily to the families, and not just to the very poor families, because um, there are many middle-class families in Latin America, in Chile, which have lost uh, their incomes, whose livelihoods are being threatened, um, and the government has to play a role as insurer of last resort. So I am in favor of a government policy that is bold uh, with a lot of activism. But, pulling money out of people's pension funds is not the way to go uh, for at least three reasons. The first one is that uh, before COVID hit, probably the most hotly debated issue in Chile was to how to put more money into people's pension funds because um, we're all clear that pensions in Chile and in much of Latin America, America are insufficient. So uh, we cannot forget What happened to be a priority three months ago. We need to ensure that people have better pensions, and as a result, uh, financing the current package in a way that makes sure that people have uh, less uh, good pensions, insufficient pensions in the future, is not the way to go. Second argument is, well, maybe the government should um, put that money back into people's accounts. That also has a problem because the proposal is that you pull 10% out of everybody's account, and therefore, if you happen to be, uh, and for everybody, for everybody in the country without any distinction of income. So, if you happen to be very well off and you pull out 10% of your account, the government will be putting millions into your account. And in a region where inequality and unfairness is a first order issue, Pursuing a policy that is completely unfair from the point of view of the amounts of money that the government would put into the accounts of the better off strikes me as exactly uh, wrong-headed. Last but not least, we have to be serious in the sense that we agree on frameworks uh, and then we follow those frameworks. The Chilean opposition and the government agreed on a package uh, amounting to $12 billion, 5% of GDP, um, just a couple of weeks ago and um, if we want to provide more relief to middle-class families, we should do it within that framework. Finding ways to bypass the framework means simply undoing what uh, everybody agreed to do just two weeks ago and that's not the way countries act uh, seriously and move forward.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Eric, can we bring you in perhaps for a a view on the question about the argument for governments to temporarily perhaps bail out private companies uh, as a sort of relief uh, under the current circumstances?
6: Sure. Uh, Let me say something regarding the first question, because I agree completely with with Andres regarding that. Probably I would complement his idea saying that the discussion we have to divide the discussion in two on, on the one hand the needs of the people and on the other hand the financing how to finance those needs and that's an important discussion uh, within within this problem regarding where to find the resources to f- uh, to support household uh, loss of income and i would say okay there are many alternatives and i think The the worst of them is to get the money from the pension funds because of the reasons that Andres explained. Regarding the the question of bailouts, uh, private companies, I imagine we're thinking about uh, big companies on the one hand, uh, and in that case we have uh, studied the problem, and of course Given the impact of COVID-19, we're going to have an impact not only in terms of flows of credit, but also in terms of the stocks. And probably non-performing loans are going to increase. In that way, I would say if the companies are strategic in terms of interconnections, for instance, in the case of airlines, or they are really important for the provision of some services to the public, or they have a a large um, number of employees, and and so on, I think there is a a business case to uh, provide uh, support to that type of companies. But of course, it has to be with very, very strong conditions in terms of having uh, a good business for all the citizens of, of the country. Uh, one example, for instance, what uh, the U.S. have implemented had implemented in 2008-2009 with the, with the TARP process in terms of investing in in banks with problems, but at the same time trying to recover that investment as soon as possible. So you you can have a strong restrictions in terms of that. Uh, the government and these companies. So I, I wouldn't say it shouldn't be a dogmatic uh, discussion. It should be more a practical discussion r- regarding what are the benefits and costs of uh, bailing out the, this, these companies. So, and we're gonna have that type of discussion from time to time. And, and we're having that discussion in some places because of the impact on, on big companies like, like uh, airlines. So I, I think we, we shouldn't be
0: dogmatic on that. Thank you. Um, can I pose the infrastructure question, the build, build, build question to Andy Powell?
3: Um, sure. Thanks. Uh, th- thanks, Gareth. I'm actually one of the editors of the infrastructure, the the DIA on our flagship on infrastructure that will come out, as Malcolm mentioned, on July 30th. So, I mean, first of all, you know, the region invests too little and badly in infrastructure. So, Um, I think in 2018, the total infrastructure investment was about 2.8% of GDP in the Caribbean. And everybody, every economist who's done any kind of attempt of analyzing this thinks it should be at least double, if not more than that. And Andres asked, you know, why does Latin America perform badly? And many things were mentioned and they were all true. But also bad infrastructure is another contributor to low productivity and, and low growth and, and, and that has been unfortunately persisting for some time. And not only has it been persistent over time, but every time a recession comes along, because there's a, a requirement to adjust fiscally, it's, it's, it's infrastructure that gets cut, it's public infrastructure spending that gets cut because it's the more flexible item in the budget as opposed to uh, other inflexible items. So we definitely need to in, need to invest more in infrastructure. The question is really when to do it and how to do it. Um, but as also, as Victoria mentioned, I mean, there is no fiscal space to, to do this at the moment. And we're going to end up after the COVID crisis with higher debt levels. And most countries will probably face a fiscal adjustment. So on the one hand, we're going to need to create additional fiscal space, either through serious tax reforms, and um, rebalancing of spending, we do think that there is considerable space to do both of those. So that's on the public investment side, and then on, and then linked to that, we also need to find ways to attract more private um, uh, investment. In kind of silver bullet here, uh, in fact, there are some dangers um, that can create other public sector liabilities. But the fact is that we don't invest. enough and we don't invest very well. So to the extent that attracting private finance can also improve the quality of investment, um, there is definitely space for that. And in the new flagship that's coming out, we have a discussion about how we might be able to attract more um, private finance. It's, It's really quite extraordinary, the dependence on commercial banks. But when you talk to commercial banks, they say this is a thing of the past and they won't be able to Offer such long-term lending to infrastructure in the future, and how little we attract from uh, global institutional investors into um, infrastructure finance. So we really need to try to figure out what it is that we have to do to, to be able to attract more private money into in, uh, in infrastructure, and and we need to improve how we invest in infrastructure. This is really the key because there's no point in investing more if we don't invest well. And that should also be sustainable for a green, a more equitable future. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Andy. I think we've got time for one quick round of questions, if people can keep uh, answers on point. I'll I'll pose three, whether three are answered, is another matter. Um, Perhaps related to what Andy has just said, um, in light of COVID, Is there an argument or a greater argument for multilaterals to encourage and support uh, equity investments in the private sector in Latin America? Could be that's a yes, no answer. Uh, And perhaps pose that to Brian uh, and uh, Eric, if we can. Uh, Secondly, uh, and perhaps for Andy, uh, green recovery. Is there any particular way as you move from relief to stimulus that there is a way in which what you've also just said about infrastructure could be specifically targeted and shaped uh, for green uh, recovery or green growth? Uh, And thirdly, um, perhaps a question about uh, China-based banks. Um, An elephant in the room, perhaps, but what is... The likelihood, or could you comment upon the opportunities that China based banks uh, are likely to be uh, the most uh, freewheeling or the most uh, uh, likely source of uh, new capital inflows, at least into certain countries uh, in Latin America, in the short to medium term? Um, Perhaps go to. Brian, uh, on, on the first point about uh, uh, investment into equity investments and, and Eric to cut in uh, if you wish
7: to do so. Now, thanks, Gareth. I think a lot can be said on this, but time requires me to be super brief. So on this one, um, I think there is, a, there, is, there is a case for more investment from multilateral financial institutions into the private sectors in the region. Of course, they have to be ready to absorb that kind of um, investment. Now, can they do more equity? I wasn't sure if the question was emphasizing the equity or the investment, but can it be more equity? Will they do equity-like or uh, take take stakes? And I think that could increase. But I don't think that would be the key question. It could be equity or um, mezzanine financing as well as direct financing. But I think there is a case for it um, subject to absorptive capacity within the region. Eric, would you like to to come in? Sure. Uh, I,
6: I think I, I agree with, with that in principle, in terms that there are some from investors and, and good ideas to, to finance like infrastructure projects in Latin America and the Caribbean. So one, I, I would say, support from multilaterals in terms of joining forces and, and provide this financing through equity or or bonds i think it could be it could be a good idea and and then we can share risk in terms of this uh, um, this this project which are which need a lot of uh, resources so i would say yes in general regarding the the second point of the green recovery I, i think we have to to find ways to do that So we talk about uh, uh, a new normal or or a better normal. We talk about um, inclusive and sustainable growth, but we have to be practical as Brian said at the beginning. And I I have a proposal Uh, and I did uh, this exercise with some colleagues uh, colleagues at the Inter-American Development Bank. And we did a counterfactual exercise saying, what would have happened if our Large uh, pension funds in Chile and our sovereign wealth funds had invested in ESG companies, what would have happened with the financial returns? And you know what? What happened? We got a better performance financially if pension funds in Chile and sovereign wealth funds had invested in ESG companies. So there is no trade off between investing in a sustainable way, and having lower financial returns, which is the conventional wisdom that everybody has today. So now I'm trying to propose that as a way to say, okay, in practical ways, we had that possibility. And uh, Moreover, in the case of the those are compulsory. So if you are an employee, you have to put 10% of your salary in that pension fund, and you choose only the risk that you're taking based on the uh, equity proportion. But you're hostage because you invest in all the companies uh, in that benchmark. But I would prefer to invest in sustainable sustainable companies. So that's why I would like to have like an alternative of a sustainable fund. I say, you know what, I want to put my resources that I'm not in the other one because I'm a hostage in terms of investing in companies that are um, bad for the environment, have had bad corruption cases, or they are really bad uh, in terms of the activity for communities. So I think there is a business case, a practical business case to uh, find a sustainable recovery.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be the bad cop here. Um, I'm looking at the, the timeline, we've come to the, the end of the, the webinar panel. Um, we will try uh, to get a recording of this uh, panel onto our various platforms. We'll also liaise with the IDB so that we can get uh, links to the report and other materials up on our platforms as well for, for people to, uh, uh, to take forward from here. And I'm very happy to take up Malcolm's uh, earlier invitation um, to hold a discussion uh, or a follow up uh, conversation around the uh, flagship report uh, in a a few weeks or a few months' time. Although I would like a short vacation at some stage, um, uh, but on infrastructure, which is a a theme very close to to my interests, and I'm sure many other people. I'd very much like to thank the IDB. Uh, and to Brian uh, for their participation, uh, specifically to Eric, Andy, Victoria, uh, also for Esther behind the scenes uh, for bringing us together in various ways, uh, to Andres uh, uh, for his uh, participation, uh, and to Manoush and uh, Malcolm for introducing us. So uh, without uh, further ado, I'd just like to... uh, Say to everybody, at least on this side of the Atlantic, uh, have a good evening.
7: Stay kind, stay safe and stay well. Thank you very much.